millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 73. My guest this week is Victor Laval. He is the author of the short story collection Slapboxing with Jesus, as well as four novels, The Ecstatic, Big Machine, The Devil in Silver, and The Changeling, as well as two novellas, Lucretia and the Croons and The Ballad of Black Tom. He's also the creator and writer of a comic book, Victor Laval's Destroyer. He's been the recipient of numerous awards, including a Whiting Writers Award, a United States Artists Ford Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Shirley Jackson Award, an American Book Award, and the key to Southeast Queens. He was raised in Queens, New York, and he now lives in Washington Heights with his wife and kids. He teaches at Columbia University. He can be kind of hard to reach, but he still loves you. And I am glad that we were able to connect and record this episode. Um, it's, it's really lovely to not only talk about what makes somebody excited about writing, but also reading that has profoundly shaped them from the beginning. So ever since we talked about that in Joe Fassler's episode about light, the dark and talking about authors and, and what books inspired them, it was really great to talk to Victor about creating a whole anthology from a writer who really, really shaped him as a young writer, Richard Matheson. So I think you'll really enjoy listening to this. It's sort of about the evolution of the writing process, as well as many tips that Victor shares that I think will be of use. So happy listening. Here we go with Victor. Hey, Victor, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure. One of the things that I was really excited to talk to you about, um, I'm always excited when someone has multiple roles within the writing world. So you have edited and selected a, a, a wide selection of Richard Matheson's stories in the book that's coming out this month. But in your introduction, you talk about what an influence, the reason you did a book or edited a book on Richard Matheson in the first place was how much he impacted your own writing. So I'd love to talk about your relationship to Richard Matheson and his writing and, and what he's meant to you. Um, and maybe we can talk about the process of creating a book as well as how it how you think it's influenced your work? Sure, I mean, the, I would say the the first the first impact that Matheson ever had on me, I didn't even understand it was Matheson. Uh, my uncle, when I was a kid, my uncle loved, as many people did, the Twilight Zone, and he would sit me down. He sort of it was like one of those things, you know, you have a uncle or an aunt or a parent who says like, I want to show you good things, uh, interesting things. <laughs> so he would sit me down, and we would watch. Um, Twilight Zones. And so one of his most famous ones is uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, uh, the famous William Shatner one about the um, gremlin on the wing of the plane. Such a uh, good one. Yes, it's a great one. And I absolutely loved it. And in fact, showed it to my son uh, maybe this summer, and he loved it. Um, so we're passing on the torch. But 
that uh, Richard Matheson wrote that uh, screenplay, I mean teleplay, based on his short story. Um, but I didn't understand that that's what Richard Matheson had done. I just saw the show, you know, and fell in love. And then when I got older and I started reading on my own more, I came across Richard Matheson. I think probably the first thing was maybe even like Shrinking Man, The Shrinking Man maybe, uh, maybe one or two of his other stories. Um, and then eventually stumbling into Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and realizing, oh, wow, this guy, like he had just crossed all, I had been basically crossing paths with him again and again. I just hadn't realized it. Uh, and in a way that was more beautiful because it felt like he'd been woven into my artistic life or my the mind of the life of my imagination uh, for much longer than I understood, uh, and therefore I felt very bonded to him. I I love how that happens because I think when we're younger, um, there's such an impact that reading can have because you're not really prepared for it. You don't know. Um, how much it can influence you. And then as we get older and we're reading stuff, we're sort of looking for that hit of that life-changing experience of reading something that we had when we were young. Yeah, well, I, I really do think that uh, the things that you, like when you're, when you're a young reader, it's sort of like the, like the aperture is fully open, do you know, and you can just embrace the things that you're introduced to without a degree of uh, cynicism, without a sense of... Uh, is this important or not? Is this serious literature or not? Um, does this make me look smart or not? None of that stuff, at least in my childhood, none of that was part of my thinking. All that mattered was like, this has like knocked me over, right? And there are times I there 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 are times I wish I could get the sort of aperture of my heart or my mind quite that open again. Because there are genres that I didn't read when I was a kid that now when I read them, I just kind of go like, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> you know, but I realized it's just that I just wasn't given a chance to fall in love when I was young enough to not be cynical about it or to not look for the flaws. So I'm curious about how it was picking the stories for a collection, because this isn't every single, this isn't the complete Richard Matheson is the no. best of Richard Matheson. So how did, what were your criteria for picking the best stories and the ones that you felt should go in the collection? Well, so the way it worked, there was, uh, uh, there was about four volumes worth of, if it was his complete stories, there was about four volumes worth of stories uh, that had been published here or there and had been collected. And so I read through all of them. Um, and certainly, you know, on one, they were sort of like, okay, me and the editor agreeing, uh, sorry, the, um, the person who'd hired me to edit uh, from, the, from Penguin, um, agreeing, you know, the, the famous ones, we want the famous ones in there. It's not going to be one of those uh, selected stories where it's sort of like, uh, oh, this is just all the B-sides and rare cuts, <laughs> you know, uh, just for the aficionados. Because there was a sense like you want people to fall in love with those things and also to no matter what age they are, be like, oh my God, this is that story that I saw on that Twilight Zone marathon uh, a year ago, whatever. This guy's great and fall in. So, so there's maybe 10 or 15 of them that almost anyone who's ever watched any of those uh, shows will know, right? And then after that, what was kind of fun was to say like, okay, now 
set that aside, we've still got a good 10, 15 other spots worth of um, room here. Now I can really start picking and choosing based on showing the variety of what Matheson did and did so well. And that was exciting. Uh, and even like being introduced to stories that I didn't, I'd never heard of before, I'd never read before, but I thought they were just gems. And it was like a gift to be able to just include them. So it was really like the criteria was just what was still exciting to me. And I have to say, one of the most intense things in the whole thing, I don't want to spoil it because it's so amazing, was the story you told about skipping school in the <laughs> introduction and the sort of way that unfolds. And there's such, I don't know, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, there's a crazy reveal at the end of Usual subject uh, Suspects. But right. there, there is, that is, I think, as valid a crazy story. So the com combination of that experience for you in school and reading Richard Matheson, I'm wondering at what point you were, went from being a reader to thinking, oh, I could do this. I could tell these kinds of stories and, and moved into writing fiction. Uh, well, I guess I started writing fiction when I was about 12 or 13. Uh, and I was writing, uh, so the, the writers who I would just, uh, I just devoured at that age uh, alongside Matheson would have been Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, Clyde Barker, uh, Peter Straub, uh, horror writers. I was definitely in the horror. I was a, a horror kid. Um, <laughs> and so then I was writing all these ripoffs of, in particular, Stephen King and Clyde Barker short stories. Uh, basically taking their stories set in either Maine or in England and just setting them in the part of New York that I knew. Um, and often they were just literal ripoffs. I mean, you know, uh, take a Stephen King story from one of his early collections from Night Shift or Skeleton Crew, and it just was literally like, oh, that story, but Queens. <laughs> uh, you know, but it was the way that I started learning how to write was by mimicking. You know, like if it worked on me, let's see if I could make it work on somebody else. Uh, and that was, like, as far as I'm concerned, I certainly don't track my life as a writer to when I started publishing, uh, like I track it to when I started saying, I really want to just write stories. I think that's really important because a lot of people feel like they're not real writers until they're publishing, but there's so much time that has to happen before that you get to that point. Well, and the other hard part about that is think about how much power you're then giving to the world over you. Like, uh, uh, like, if you were a runner, you wouldn't say, uh, if you ran every day and you were on the track team and you uh, did your best on the team, you wouldn't say, well, I need the world to tell me I'm a runner. The fact that you run makes you a runner. And the fact that you write makes you a writer, as far as I'm concerned. And there's so much power in claiming that title for yourself rather than waiting on, really, uh, in the end, you know, one person who's in the right mood who happens to read your story that day and says, yeah, I would like to publish this. That's such a crapshoot. Whereas if you just claim it and say, I'm writing, I'm serious about this, I read uh, other books and I sit down in whatever schedule of life that I can create and I produce work, why would you deny yourself the title of writer uh, if you are acting like one? I don't know. And this is, 
perpetually a challenge, I think, for anyone in a creative field. Yeah. It's, you know, nobody says, well, I go to court, I, I, I do a little bit of casework, but I'm not really a lawyer. That's exactly you know? right. There is something, and, and maybe it is because there isn't the same requirement. Like, you don't have to have an MFA in order no, to for publish. Sure. Nobody, nobody checks that. That's not a gate that you have to go through. So maybe without those kind of structures around it and requirements, it's harder for people to say, yeah, I'm a writer because it isn't as sort of formalized. Hey, maybe that's possible. I mean, but I just, I think of uh, the stories of so many different writers who uh, certainly before the MFA existed, there were people who became writers, you know, and they worked part time or they were doctors or they were stay at home moms. So, for instance, Grace Paley uh, was raising uh, a couple of kids, th I think three or four kids, uh, and she talked about specific, and she was writing, like, that was her full-time job. And so she talked about, uh, people would ask her, why did you write these really short, brilliant stories? And she would say, well, I would put one of my kids down, and in the time it took to put them down, and before the next one needed me to pick them up, I would just pull out a little notebook and write very quickly. And that would be like a paragraph of the story. Then I'd have to pick up, pick the next kid up. And in that way, I mean, and to my mind, she's one of the, uh, one of the finest 20th century uh, American short story writers or just fiction, writers of fiction. And certainly, so she certainly uh, didn't have an MFA. I mean, there's so many paths pre-MFA for how to be a writer, but I think since it became somewhat professionalized, um, Maybe in particular, people who don't have that degree feel even more uh, like you can't claim this, you're not legitimate. But I know lots of people with MFAs who haven't published yet who also don't feel like they can call themselves writers. So I don't know. Maybe just writers have a hard time claiming that power. Yeah, I think writers, I think we're all like hyperverbal people who can come up with a lot of ways to beat ourselves up with all yeah. of our incredible vocabularies and, and concepts <laughs> and there's all that going on in there self-loathing i think is a big uh, is, a, is a basic requirement sometimes so how do you work with that like as you not only i mean compiled this collection but you've written numerous novels yourself and how do you how do you address your own story when you're sitting down to write your own work uh well i would say um in a way like of one of the gifts that i I didn't understand it was a gift at the time, but now I understand. My mom is an immigrant from East Africa, from Uganda, who worked like hell from the minute she got here till she retired, right? And even, quite frankly, after she retired, she worked off the books uh, for a number of years. And so from her, I gained this sense that anything and everything that you want to do requires just like showing up at the job. So she was like driven to work because she had me and my sister to take care of and my grandmother. Um, but on the weekends, she also, she was an artist herself. She would, she was sculpt, she painted, she made dresses, um, she could draw, she played the piano. Uh, and she didn't do these things to try to become uh, famous or anything like that or to publish or to be shown in a gallery. She did them because they brought her joy. Um, but she also did them, she would be like, for an hour in the morning on Saturday, I'm just going to be making a little sculpture, so don't bother me. And she would work for that hour, she would do it, and then after that was done, she'd be like, all right, 
who's going to have breakfast? Let's go out to the park, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I think seeing that, I thought like, okay, it's just, just kind of as cheesy as it sounds, it's just like showing up at work and sitting down for the job. And so that has always been my mentality, not to wait for inspiration or anything like that, but just to find the time, sit down, work. Uh, and it took a great deal of the sense of magic out of things. You know, you didn't have to get hit by a lightning bolt. You just have to be sitting down and working. I think that's amazing. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things in there. There's more than a couple, but that it's, you don't have to have, you know, the cabin in the woods with the artfully torn sweater and the, the coffee looking out at the field and nobody bothering you for three months to make something. No. Although if you can get that, uh, I would urge anyone if they can get it to get that. That sounds great. Yeah, if you have it, <laughs> yes, you know, it don't wonderful. throw it away. But that's exactly right. It's not required. <laughs> it's not required, though. That's I agree. <laughs> Although I do know my favorite when I, I spoke to Natasha Dion ages ago, she said she got that and she couldn't write a word because she was so used to being in the mix with noise uh -huh. and all this kind of stuff. So. Don't feel guilty if, uh, if you have trouble under those circumstances. It doesn't mean you're yeah. not a real writer. That's, that too. Well, maybe she just also needed a break, right? Like yeah. Sometimes it's just nice to just have a little, a little downtime too if you are working hard. Be in that cabin in the woods and just drink coffee and hike in the woods or something. That exactly. sounds great too. I know. It sounds so nice. So, I mean, <laughs> what is your schedule like? Because you're teaching, you're writing, you're editing. How are you fitting everything in? Uh, so the, the, the way I work, this really kicked in even more once our kids came. Uh, our, so we have two kids. Our oldest is six. And um, before that, I would sit down in the chair. But I, if I'm honest, uh, when I, the responsibilities I had was a little bit of teaching, you know, and I'm, I'm dating my, then, my now wife, then girlfriend. Uh, I could, in theory, sit for five hours on an off day, say, or on a weekend because I didn't owe anything to anyone. But in truth, I would be like looking at videos, I'd play some music, I'd stop for a little while and like just sort of shut my eyes. I wasn't really working, um, like nonstop. Then our son came and uh, my wife is also a writer and a teacher. Uh, and so we had to come up with a schedule when he was born. He was born in May. Um, so we had summer uh, and so we already had the luxury of summer off from teaching. Uh, so that's already... Uh, a privilege, right? But um, sh we both needed to be close so that we could relieve each other. My wife, even though she was like nursing and all this stuff, she definitely said like, I need at least two hours out of the house every day just for my own sanity, you know? Uh, and so what we agreed on was each of us would get two hours out of the house, no matter what. You want to go see a movie, go see a movie, whatever you like, but you have two hours. So I found a Dunkin' Donuts around the corner <laughs> and where you could sit for the whole time, you know, uh, and I realized like, this is my two hours to work. And it became my, my practice from 10 to 12 every day, except for when teaching, when school started again, except for teaching days. Um, uh, and once, and since the kids were there, not on weekends, since we were with the kids, 10 to 12 every day, just sit down and write. And in the beginning, it took a little time to get used to it. But now I find uh, it's almost like my mind is like, I feel supercharged 
at like 9.59. <laughs> I turn on the computer at 10. I write for two hours. I turn off the computer. And I have, I, in that two hours, I do so much more than I ever used to do in six. That's uh, amazing. Uh, but it's just because like it's super concentrated and there's really no, there's no other choice. Like my kids, I could tell my kids I need an hour and they're going to be like, uh-huh, fuck you. Uh, I'm hungry. I need a bath. Uh, I want to play. You can't reason with them. Uh, no. right? Not really. Um, uh, not if you want. Not if I would like to be in their memory and times considered at least an okay dad. Right. Uh, which I would. Uh, uh, so, uh, so, but in in many ways, like that focus has actually made it possible for me to do a lot more work than I used to be able to do. So, like the editing stuff. Uh, because I work in those two hours, like reading the Matheson stories in the evening after we put the kids down, uh, I might have an hour or two if we don't watch a show together or anything like that or, uh, or go out if we get a babysitter. If we don't do those things, I have two hours to read and just read. I wouldn't beat myself up that I wasn't writing enough or anything like that. And in that way, I actually I got through the stories and got to really uh, give them the time and, and interest that they deserve. I think that having those kind of boundaries and limitations in some ways can inspire more creativity than people think. And I think I've been, I've been trying little like five minute writing sessions thinking, Oh, what can you do in five minutes? Like, well, I've got five minutes. Why yes. not? And you know, you can get something done in five minutes. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think uh, probably just about anyone's life, you, uh, you're trying to make a living. You have people that you're taking care of. You're, you have somebody's suffering through their own illness. There's a million things that are uh, forcing, uh, are narrowing the amount of time that you have. But I think even down to five minutes, back to the uh, Cynthia, I'm sorry, the uh, Grace Paley. The Grace Paley, yeah. Uh, in that five minutes, I mean, one unbelievably profound, interesting, or even just funny and well-observed sentence that was a that was an an incredibly valuable five minutes of your life, you know. Absolutely. And you pile, yeah, and you pile those up, and in a year, in ten years, whatever schedule life allows, you got a story or a book, and no one can take that away from you. No. So with that schedule, how long did it take you to edit the collection? Uh, I would say I think maybe six months. Maybe nine, six to eight months. I can't remember exactly how much time. I had a, I had a good bit of uh, uh, headway so that I um, – because I think they contacted me last year saying we wanted to come out this year uh, in time for like Halloween mm, month, you know, course. month since it's spooky stories and everything. Um, and so I think it, maybe it was more like six or seven months I had, which actually turned out to be – I could read two to three stories a night which was enough to enjoy them without sort of becoming overloaded or getting sick of them or start to feel like a chore. Uh, and then the, and then the introduction slash short story that I wrote for the beginning that maybe took another couple weeks, uh, to draft and put to get done. And, and were you working on your own fiction at the time or was this your main project along with teaching? No, I was working on, I was working on, um, this, I was working on a comic book. I was working on uh, some fiction, like finishing up edits on something, and then getting ready for, and, uh, and the teaching as well. It was very busy. Yes, it sounds very busy. 
but um, but you know it was uh, I, I I I kept trying to remind myself uh, it was such a good kind of busy that uh, even when I felt tired and all this stuff I would try to remind myself to, to feel very happy and grateful that it was this kind of stuff that I was spending my time on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of that's always tricky. It's like oh, there are all these good things that you want to do, and how do you balance? doing all of them. But as long as they're all moving forward, I suppose it feels positive in the end. Well, I did try, what I did do uh, would be like on the days, so the teaching, it's not very many days, it's only like two days a week, uh, you know, so uh, that's a gift too. So then I would just sort of say, okay, Monday is a Matheson day, Wednesday is the comic book day, Friday is the novel day. And in that way, I don't get muddled about what I'm working on each day. And each project would get two hours of, like, intense work. That's great. And then, you know, and then I don't think about it for a week. And then I'm excited even to come back to it uh, again. And that was something I was able to uh, sort of schedule. I think sometimes uh, I'm a excessively uh, schedule-driven structure. I really need structure to feel comfortable and like I'm going to get things done. But once I set up that structure, uh, everything, everything will get done. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I am the same way. If you put it on the calendar, it happens. That's exactly right. Thank goodness for Google, Google calendar at this point, just popping up to remind me, uh, this is coming up and I go, yes, that's right. It is. So could you say a little bit about working on the comic book? I'm fascinated by that process. Are you already working with an illustrator or are you working on the story and then it'll happen later? I'm fascinated by how all of that happens. Uh, so the comic book is, uh, has already started coming out. Uh, it's been coming out like uh, it's, we're up to issue, issue five is coming out I think in about a week. It's a six issue limited series. I think my uh, husband's been reading it. He's real oh, big on the comics. Oh, well, if he has, then that's very kind of him, and I appreciate it. Um, but uh, it's, uh, um, it, the way it worked was really about a year ago, I pitched this comic book idea to this company who I'd had, uh, I'd written a short thing for them like a year or two before that. They said, if you ever have any interesting ideas, you know, reach out and let us know. Uh, I let it sit for a while, and then I had this idea, and the idea was basically uh, to continue the story of the Frankenstein, of Mary, Sher Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. Mm. Uh, uh, because at the end of the novel, the creature, the monster, is still alive. He says at the very end, I'm going to go off and kill myself now that Victor Frankenstein is dead, but he doesn't do it in the book. And so I decided he's still alive, uh, uh, like living in the Antarctic by this point. Um, and then I wanted to sort of wed that story to a story in the present about uh, a woman who is the great, 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 great grandniece of Victor Frankenstein, uh, the only, the, survive, the surviving family member of the only person in Frankenstein's family that the monster didn't kill mm. uh, in the novel. Uh, his, uh, Frank, Victor's brother Edward survives. Um, in my book, he, you he eventually comes to America, sets up life here, and this grandniece is a black woman named Dr. Josephine Baker, um, who is a brilliant scientist herself. Her son is murdered by the Chicago police, mm. uh, and she brings him back to life using modern technology. Interesting. Uh, and then all these things come together in various ways that I'm like spooling out. 
Um, so, but I pitched that to them and uh, they really liked the idea. And then we began the process of, uh, it was a few steps. The first step was they got one artist involved who came up with uh, visual uh, ideas for the monster, Dr. Baker, and for her son, whose name is Akai. And we finessed that a little bit. I had ideas about how it should look. The artist came up with something. I suggested some edits. The artist changed it. And then we had our, our main cast set. Then we found another artist, an artist named Dietrich Smith. Uh, I sent him, uh, I would work with the editors on the script. They, I sent it to them. They sent me, sent it back with notes. We go through maybe two passes of the script. And then after the script is really solid, then we send it to Dietrich and then Dietrich illustrates it. So exciting. It was very, it's, it, I have to say like in many ways, you know, uh, you know, writing fiction, you are in theory doing every job. Right. Right. Except for obviously if you have editors or if you have readers who give you feedback. Um, but there was such a gift in like, I sent it off to, we sent it off to Dietrich and then when he sent back his illustrations, what was wonderful was to see like everything I, I asked him to put in there is there, but it's all been turned into something so much more beautiful or terrifying or interesting than I imagined in my head because I am not a visual artist. I can't, I'm not an illustrator. Uh, so he would just do these things with some simple, I have some simple line, uh, the monster is sitting on an iceberg. And then what he drew based on that was just so much better than I could have ever hoped, you know? And that collaborative process was, has really been just like wonderful. I think that's so exciting because even if you're not doing every, every job in the sense of you're not editing or publishing the book, but as the writer of a novel or a short story, it's your responsibility to carry the visual, the, all of the senses of communicating every single aspect of that world, but to have the support of an illustrator who's also working on that, um, that just sounds really, really fun. I mean, it's really fun, and I have to say the other thing that is, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't presume it's true for every fiction writer, but it's certainly true for me. I'm a really controlling person, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and I really think, like, I want, like, a, or maybe writing fiction has made me, like you say, like, because you have to do all those jobs, the, the, the interior life, the exterior life, the, what people imagine, what people feel, all that, there's a way that I've become used to sort of, like, doing it all myself, setting it all up and becoming maybe even a little bit like, okay, I have to do all this. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been really a gift, not just the illustrator, but like, so the editors, um, they are much more versed in comics. So there would be things I'd be doing that were, that would have been, I think, good for prose. And they would say, you know, all this dialogue is great, but we wondered if the, if Dr. Baker was just doing this, wouldn't that imply all of that? Mm. And, I, and I would be like, oh my goodness, you're totally right. That's so much better than anything I was gonna do. You know, and so uh, being humbled by that, but also being excited by that collaborative process and saying like, if I can trust the people I work with are good, they only make me, and more importantly, they only make the project better. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is something exciting about 
having to look at things from a fresh perspective and looking at how the story works from a different angle and because of a different genre. I mean, even going from short stories to novels is a, is a shift. Absolutely. And thinking about, okay, oh, I can do this differently if I'm in this different form. Um, I think that can be really, yeah, it, 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 it's amazing that even working in something like writing and, and thinking about it for years and years and years, there's always a new way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, part of, uh, uh, I think if you're going to stay excited by being a writer, right, like uh, the things that I was, I, th I think, you know, the things that I was stretching myself to do 10 years ago, now I sort of look back and I say, well, that was the best I could do then. But now I see all these other ways I could approach the same idea because I think I have a wider, uh, I've read more, I've listened to other writers more, I've tried other things more. Like that's how you stay excited and anything is that you, you keep trying new things or keep adding new things to what, you're, uh, to what you can do. Otherwise it just becomes like, you know, producing toasters or something like that. <laughs> uh, and there's not, I mean, while that is very useful, it's not, a, it's not, it's not art. It's no longer like exciting to produce the same, even toasters, you know, you, one year or the next, they say like, now we have a new color. Or right. Whatever. Cause even they get bored. Yeah. We, now you can toast six pieces at a time instead six, of just four. Right. It will never be enough. Now there's four, the 40, the toaster cannon will be exactly uh, next year. I think that's the beautiful thing about writing is that it's never, it's never going to get old because there's always a new way to think about it. And I think that's another reason to, to always throw everything you've got at the project you're working on. Because as you said, years later, you're going to look back and say, oh, well, now I have new ways of thinking about that. So I think it's important not to hold back as you're working on whatever you're working on. I, you know, that, I, I really, I, I just really agree with that point, uh, in part because uh, I remember when I was younger, when I was like, uh, even like, say when I was 12, starting out writing short stories, but even as a younger, like a, after, when I was working on even like my first book or uh, first collection of stories and then a first novel, there used to be this way that I would have, the, I would have this notebook where I would say, I have this interesting idea for something, I'm going to save it to write for another story. And then I just never wrote those stories. And when I uh, look back, I think to myself, oh, I should have just stuck it in. And right. Because I think I had this idea that, like, um, I'm going to have a finite number of things I dream up. So I better not waste them. Yes. Uh, you know, whereas now what I realize is your mind, there's always more ideas. And in fact, there's often better ideas that come later if you just clear out the space. Uh, like you probably, like no one, you just don't run out of ideas because the world, if you keep living, if you're a part of the world, you keep existing, the world keeps giving you more, more information, more things you want to talk about, write about. Uh, so sticking it all in is just a great way to just get it out. I think there's totally. something, I mean, this may be a little magical out there, but I think it's like, it shows that you're taking the process seriously too. Like, I have this idea, and I'm going to take it on, and I'm going to use it. And trusting, like you say, that there will always be more. And I think the more that you use, the more likely you are to have more, because you're engaging with them so actively. Well, yeah, and, like, even just, uh, like, uh, what is it they say, uh, you know, um, grandparents 
who babysit their kids seem, I mean, you know, this is based on the thing now, like next year it'll be totally opposite. But uh, <laughs> for this year, uh, it said like grandparents who babysit their kids sometimes or, watch, or, or spend time with their grandkids seem to be, seem to have like their cognitive abilities stay with them longer in part because they're forced by being with the kids, they're forced to think about the world like they're, they're forced to stay actively participating in the thinking, creating conversation process because a child needs to learn new things. They don't understand these concepts. You have to explain it to them. And by engaging in this way and staying uh, vital, the mind actually stays healthy as opposed to atrophying. Yes. Uh, you know, and feeling like the imagination obviously is produced in the mind as well. So why wouldn't that also be saved from atrophy by constant creation? That's fascinating. Yeah, because the mind hates a vacuum. So if you've got yeah. little, little kids around asking questions, you have to think about what the answer is. And I think in some ways, all, all good fiction is sort of asking a question, like, what if this happened? For sure. And here's all the ways it might go. Yes. You know. And then you get to try all of them. And you get to try all of them. <laughs> yeah, and maybe if you keep trying, you'll have a you'll have a whole giant four volume canon um, <laughs> of your stories, and someday we'll be talking to somebody who's compiling your stories um, into was, a collection. I, that was an amazing callback. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm so impressed by how you brought that back around. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was. I didn't see it coming. You didn't see it coming. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> It's podcast magic, everybody, right, right. here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for being a part of it, and I hope everybody checks out the book, and your other books are all perfect October reading. Uh, that, this is, sorry. Oh, no. This was it's such a pleasure, and uh, really, thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.